Then, a related theme, I give unto you to be the light of this people. The New Testament version, ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Behold, do men light, and now the verse says candle, but the original word would be lamp. And put it under a bushel. In other words, do men light an olive lamp and then hide it? No, he says. But on a stand, and it giveth light to all that are in the house. Here again, disciples are radiant. Now, a lamp now designated as Roman in its time period can be carried in the hand, the palm of the hand. It's rounded at one end, and at the other there is a small hole from which protrudes a wick. One pours olive oil, which, using an expression from Moses and Exodus, is beaten for the light. And, having done so, strikes uh, with a spark and the proper thin and inflammable substance, a spark and then a flame sufficient to light the wick, often made anciently of twisted linen. Such a lamp would burn for up to six hours without needing to be refilled. Such a small lamp, placed even in a large room on, say, a mantle or a stand, gives sufficient light to cast a shadow. And all one needs to walk properly through darkness is one such slight ray of light. So the image of, quote, giving light to the whole house is fulfilled in the actual practice of the people of Jesus' time. Then he says, let your light so shine, he's earlier made it clear that their light is ultimately derived from him. Let your light so shine before this people, New Testament version before men, that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Salt, therefore, and light, part of the outcome of discipleship. Then this, for those who were as the Nephites were and as his listeners in the Galilee were, committed to the law, think not that I am come to destroy, but the more accurate word in our language is abolish the law or the prophets. I am not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Verily I say unto you, one jot nor one tittle hath not passed away from the law. In the New Testament, it's also future. Shall pass away from the law. What is a jot or a tittle? A jot is the name of the tenth letter in the Hebrew alphabet, the yod. It is a small, even the smallest, of those letters and is about the size of a comma and is usually placed, however, above the line of writing. Well, such a mark can make a tremendous difference both to the reading and pronunciation and to the meaning of a verse. And Jesus is saying even the slightest jot, even the slightest yod, is still there in the law and in me has been fulfilled. 
In the presentation of the Ten Commandments in modern times, a summary of the Decalogue, which significantly was given at the time our people had first entered the land of Zion, and on the first Sabbath there are two commandments added, and they precede the others. One is, Thou shalt thank the Lord thy God in all things, and the greatest thankfulness revolves around the greatest blessing, which is relief and release from bondage and sin. And then the second is, Thou shalt bring to me, or offer to me, a broken heart and a contrite spirit. Now that exact commandment is implicit in the verse that follows the one I've just quoted in 3 Nephi about how Jesus Christ fulfills the law. One must, he again says, repent of sin and come unto him with a broken heart and a contrite spirit. The word contrite in Hebrew has many different meanings, but they all are related. It refers to being broken or broken into. It can also mean shattered. It can also mean buffeted. It can also mean overwashed as by a hostile wave in the sea. All of these suggesting that when one actually recognizes his condition as he places himself in relation to God, he knows he is dependent and in need. To have a broken heart doesn't mean here what we often mean by it, which is in a romantic uh, mode when we say that a person was in love and his love was unrequited and that broke his heart. This instead is the turning of our hearts to a heart that was broken for us and a heart that truly responds to the very beating of ours. And that means contrition, but it also means a malleable or movable heart, a heart of flesh rather than, as the Old Testament has it, a heart of stone. There is in Jewish lore a statement that ties back to the reference to oil beaten for the light. So many of the Old Testament prophets define the house of Israel as if it were a tree and speak of the tree often as an olive tree and then say that, as our own parable has it, there must be grafting in, there must be cultivation, there must be overcoming of the bitter in order that the tame can produce and so on. Well, the heart, says Jewish lore, is like olive oil. It cannot yield its most precious fluid unless it is pressured or even beaten and then comes forth light. Therefore, says Jesus, several things about the outcome of one's relationship, his heart relationship to others. And so it now follows that he makes some comparisons between the law, which was simply a carnal one, 
and the law as it now applies given rebirth and discipleship. He says, it is written before you, thou shalt not kill. But I say unto you, that whosoever is angry with his brother shall be in danger of his judgment. In the New Testament, there are two words added. I say unto you, whosoever is angry, comma, without cause, comma. But that is absent in the third Nephi account. It is one thing to be angry without cause, but most of us can explain all the good reasons why we were angry, and we ascribe the cause to something outside of us. We do not say, I chose to be angry at you. We say, you made me angry. But in this case, the assignment of cause for Jesus is omitted. He's saying, whosoever is angry, period. And I believe he's talking about the lasting kind of anger, the anger that will not yield, will not permit the other person to make amends, will not permit forgiveness to have its work, and which remains bitter and cries out with such phrases as he quotes raka, which means technically you need to be taken to court. And he also says, thou fool. Now, thou fool is a mode of anger and usually reflects one's anger for a given statement or for an act. So Jesus says, if he shall come unto me or shall desire to come unto me. And some of us do the second before the first. Remember that thy brother hath aught against thee. In other words, recognize that you have hurt or in some cases deliberately acted against another. Go thy way unto thy brother. He does not say thy enemy. He is your brother, though you may have made him your enemy or acted as if. And first be reconciled to thy brother and then come unto me with full purpose of heart and I will receive you. The implication is that if we do not do that, if we seek to come to Christ while unreconciled with others, then he cannot receive us. In the same spirit, he goes on, agree with thine adversary quickly. A reflection of Paul's phrase about love, that it uh, doesn't prolong argument. Agree with thine adversary quickly while thou art in the way with him lest at any time he shall get thee and thou shalt be cast into prison. Our society is most anxious to take grievances, not to reconciliation and to some mode of sharing and giving on both sides, but instead to go and get the utmost senine in Third Nephi account, the utmost penny if you will, in New Testament language. Can you, asks Jesus, can you uh, get out of prison without the final cost? You cannot. So agree, reconcile, soothe differences. And now, a verse that has to do with the relationship of man and woman. Behold, it is written, 
by them of old time that thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you, an intensification of the law now, that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her, or we may intrude vice versa, hath committed adultery already in his heart. Behold, I give unto you a commandment that ye suffer none of these things to enter into your heart. I pause to observe that the famous line about as a man thinketh adds as a man thinketh in his heart. And there is a distinction between those things that occur in our minds unbidden at times and what is then permitted into the combustion chamber as it were of our inner life one cannot says a german proverb prevent birds from flying over his head but he can prevent them from building nests in his hair this is the promise of jesus it is better that ye should deny yourselves of these things wherein ye will take up your cross, than that ye should be cast into hell. The reference to the cross is absent from the New Testament. In the Book of Mormon, the cross is spoken of by three heretofore unknown prophets. Crucifixion is referred to as the way the Son of Man and the Son of God would give his life. If one seeks for a one-sentence definition of taking up the cross, it is to deny oneself of all ungodliness. This is the hard side to the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the requirement that we apply our energies in what may be a difficult and continual battle. Suffer none of these things to enter into your heart. He goes on to speak of divorce, and the puzzling passage has to do with only one cause or justified cause for divorce. The New Testament word, as well as the third Nephi word, is fornication. It's properly understood as unchastity. And on no other grounds, apparently, did Jesus feel that divorce was proper. We turn now to Jesus' words pertaining to the swearing of oaths. The commandment is that we shall only perform unto the Lord oaths. But in all other cases, he cries out, swear not at all. Neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool. But let your yea be yea, and your nay nay. And then he adds, whatsoever cometh of more than these is evil. He's really saying, I take it, let your word be as good as your bond. If there has to be a four-page contract which is poured over by persons anxious to avoid any so-called loopholes, if there has to be a series of statements made verbally, it, then already one is building on the lack of trust rather than on one's commitment to honor. It should be sufficient for us to say yes, and that yes is like a covenant. Likewise the word amen. Likewise the word I won't. Where someone has said there is a will, there is a won't. 
where there is a decision there should be a word and without invoking other superstitious patterns I turn finally to the acts of exceeding generosity that are recommended in the name of discipleship Jesus says that if one smites us we are to turn our other cheek literally walk away if a man will sue us or take away our cloak give him our coat return good for evil if someone asks go a mile be willing to go twain these seem to be utterly unrealistic counsels wholly unaware of the real world and even of the jungle that we sometimes live in and as we will see part of the meaning of these pertains to those who have consecrated themselves to full-time service as for example the twelve and who are admonished not to tarry and labor over such matters but to move on with their appointed priority and purpose but even for the rest of us this counsel this refusal to revile is consistent with the way of Christ himself over and over he permitted himself preferred for himself to suffer rather than to administer suffer to be dealt with unjustly rather than to return injustice it is recorded in both versions that Jesus said it was written anciently thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy and in fact there is nowhere in the Bible or in the Book of Mormon where anyone wrote hate thine enemy and this has been a puzzlement to scholars but of late with the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls a manuscript has been found that does say hate thine enemy so the idea was in the air and he knew it and so did his listeners and his response but behold I say unto you love your enemies bless them that curse you do good to them that hate you and pray for notice he doesn't say pray against that's the easiest thing to do to cry out for vengeance upon one's enemies no he's giving us a key on how we can love our enemies begin by praying for them and eventually one may be able to feel a love for them even those who are in sinful patterns a love I say comparable to that of the father and his son pray for them who despitefully use you and persecute you the father he goes on to say is amazing for he maketh his son s-u-n but again there's wordplay in the prophets Malachi speaks of Jesus Christ as the son s-u-n of righteousness and the excerpt from the same passage in our book uses the word S-O-N of righteousness. He maketh his son to rise on the evil and on the good. And now, one of the most difficult passages of all. This sermon in the third Nephi finishes with the idea of perfection. As we have it in Matthew, it simply says, be perfect even as your father who was in heaven is perfect 
One might say that this is referring to the earlier verses and saying, be like the Father in this way, that is, in the way that permits his Son to rise on both evil and good and does not despitefully use. But in the third Nephi account we see more. This is the first instance in all holy writ where Jesus uses the word perfect for himself. He says, I would that ye should be perfect even as I, or your Father who is in heaven, is perfect. Jesus at this point is resurrected and glorified and retains only the remnant marks, the tokens of his earthly and mortal suffering, namely the wounds in his hands and side and feet. He has become perfect. In what sense, if at all, given all that we have earlier said, can we be perfect? I submit that we are led astray often with two traditional definitions. We understand the word perfect in relation often to mathematical matters, a perfect circle or a perfectly rectangular figure or perfectly parallel lines, and then assume that that idea must somehow apply to persons. But it doesn't. There is no way in which we can be like a perfect circle. Secondly, we often think of perfect in relation to attributes. So we say in the adverbial mode, he's perfectly this or perfectly that, or he performed perfectly or flawlessly. No human being has ever performed everything flawlessly. There is a question whether even Jesus did, and yet we speak of him as a perfect man. In what sense well, I suggest a third approach, which is that we, as admonished in the last verses of the Book of Mormon, can be in one sense perfect, even amidst all of our other imperfections. And what is that? He uses the expression in admonition four times, become perfect in Christ. Now we're talking about a relationship. And the one end of the relationship is the Father and his perfected Son. We, the imperfect persons, are at the other end of the relationship. One can be perfect in Christ, which is to say have a perfect relationship with him in faith and in love, even while his life remains radically imperfect. And only if he does so, in fact, will he be walking in the manner and pattern revealed from heaven. I conclude then that Jesus himself was not initially a completely perfected being, but that fulfilling his mission, he finally became so. Similarly, we can finally come to know our own missions and fulfill them as perfectly as we are capable, but by degrees becoming more perfect in all ways. But from the beginning of our relationship with him, we can be perfect in him, that we may aspire 
to such perfection, and that we may take these counsels from on high and understand their application, is my prayer in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.